0: Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started.
1: Hey everybody, it's Bob again, and I've got the book in front of me, Be Bad first get good at things fast to stay ready for the future And i've got erica anderson on the line today erica thanks for coming on the show
0: you're most welcome i'm thrilled to be here
1: you know i love about this book it's very much my philosophy of of life and and getting things done it's like just jump in do it find out where the problem is and fix them as you go because if you spend all your time perfecting things you're never really going to get a chance to, to action them so Am I correct in assuming that that's a good uh, attitude to have if you're going to grab this book and, and get into it?
0: Um. Yes. I. Yeah. <laughs> it's always good to just jump into things uh, if you're trying to learn new things. I think. Um, I think there's a little more to it than that. What the the main problem, as I see it, that I was trying to solve with this book is that. We are in a situation now where, I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but change is just accelerating daily, you know, and, and it's, we like to be good at stuff, (laughs) you know, that's just how we get to be when we're adults. We like to be expert at some things we rely on and identify with our expertise. And the fact that the world is changing so quickly every day means that we are now in a situation, all of us, where we have to get good at going back to being novices over and over and over again. And that's not very comfortable. We don't like it very much.
1: You think it's um, people's ego where where, you you basically put your ego at the door and say, you know what, I don't know this. Um, I have to have a bit of humility, and there's nothing wrong with me going to somebody that's uh, below me in the organization, and say, "Hey look, and I'm not one hundred percent sure about this. Let's sit down and uh, show me the basics so at least I know what the heck I'm talking about.
0: Yes, that's that's one part of it. So the way I talk about it in the book is and and I base this on, Um, a lot of empirical research I did, having coached and taught people for a lot of years. And then it turns out that um, the conclusions that I came to are backed up by a lot of psychology and neuroscience research, which was, you know, confirming. But uh, what I talk about in the book is these four mental skills that people who are great learners, that we call high payoff learners, are good at and use. And we call them ANU. And that stands for aspiration, neutral self-awareness, Endless curiosity and willingness to be bad first. (laughs) And uh, what you're focusing on is the willingness to be bad first one. That's the one that's hardest for most adults. But the other three are really important too. And the the great thing is you can – you can build these skills. We tend to think of some of these things as being kind of immutable. Like for instance, aspiration, the first one. We tend to think that either we want something or we don't. We wanna learn it or we don't. And that's pretty like a permanent condition. But the good news is that you can make yourself want to do things or want to learn things. And that's really important because a lot of times at work particularly, we need to learn things that we don't particularly want to learn you know, a new process at work or a new way of doing things or a new skill set. We're like, ah. Oh. But the good news is you can actually get yourself. You can raise your own aspiration. You can make yourself want to learn things.
1: Well, you know, that's, that's interesting because it, it, I was talking with a, a guy uh, a couple of months ago and about the gamification and one of the things he was teaching was uh, by making things, you know, gamifying learning. Uh, are you suggesting that uh, part of making it fun for you you know for a person to learn is part of uh, self-satisfactory and and building in reward systems
0: exactly so what we found is that the way you can get yourself to want to learn something is figure out the benefits of learning that thing that are personally meaningful to you like a lot of times when we're trying to do something we try and convince ourselves through the standard quote unquote benefits like for instance a lot of people try to get themselves to exercise by talking to themselves about Oh, it's going to be good for me and I'll lose some weight and my heart'll be healthier and it's like yawn. You know, that may not be motivating to you at all. The one of the one of the stories I always tell is when I started exercising regularly about 15 years ago, it was primarily because I wanted to read. And I know that sounds weird, but what I realized is that if I if I used an elliptical trainer, I would be able to read while I was doing it. And at the time I had two teenage kids and was in the middle of building my business and I had no time to read, which I love. And so for me, that was personally motivating. That was, as you say, fun. It was going to be satisfying for me to have, you know, wow, if I did the elliptical trainer three half hours a week, that's an hour and a half of reading time. So you have to find the thing that is motivating to you that will get you to want to learn that new thing.
1: And then it kind of develops into a habit where if you don't do it, you feel kind of weird.
0: Well, that's a whole, that's that's pose. I mean, once you once you ramp up your aspiration, then you have to getting to the point where something is habitual is the is what you're trying to do. But there's a lot that happens between, you know, those two things. So, First, you need to get yourself even to want to do it. And once you start to feel your aspiration ramp up and you start to take steps, you can tell you want to do it because you'll start to actually do it. (laughs) You'll start to take steps. And then the next thing is you have to get clear about where you're starting from. That's the skill we call neutral self-awareness because generally speaking, we're pretty inaccurate about ourselves. We, some people tend to overestimate their competence in some things and some people tend to underestimate. But if you're going to really learn well, you have to be accurate about where you're starting from. So the way to do that is to, and this may sound odd, but start noticing how you're talking to yourself about yourself. Because that's where our awareness of ourselves lives. It lives in that mental monologue that we have inside our heads. And so if you start noticing, like let's say that you want to uh, improve a skill at work, that you've gotten yourself to the point where you want to improve it, and it's learning a new way to um, do a process that you've done all along. So you have to get accurate about where you're starting from relative to that, knowing that process. So if you start out, let's say you start out and you're going, oh, I'm great, no worries then when you hear yourself saying that, then you have to ask yourself, wait a sec, is that accurate? What are the actual facts? What actual facts do I have? And by asking yourself that, by just stopping and asking yourself that, you kind of take yourself off automatic. And it encourages you to really start gathering some information about how you are in this new area. Are you okay? Are you terrible? Are you great? And if you're accurate about where you're starting from, then you can be open to what you're going to need to keep improving.
1: Hmm. You know that sounds very much like a Zen exercise of, of presence where you 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 know if you're in an argument at the office or whatever, instead of uh, escalating it by jumping in, it's better to step back, look at the situation, actually be present of what's going on. And your intelligence level, actually increases, not decreases. So it yes. sounds to me that that's a very, very good strategy to to really be way, way, way more aware of your surroundings and the people around you, but also of yourself, which is a of very yourself. difficult thing to do.
0: Very difficult. And you're, you're absolutely right. I love the connection you've made to this and presence or mindfulness, because that really is where neutral self-awareness starts. We tend to just kind of crash through life and not be that aware of ourselves and just sort of believe whatever that interior voice tells us. I'm terrible. I'm great. I, it's awful. It's wonderful. You know, and if you can, as you say, step back and just be a little objective and then ask, find people in the book, I call them sources, people who see you clearly, who want the best for you and are willing to tell you the truth about yourself and, and ask them, say, okay, I'm trying to learn this new thing. As you observe me, where am I now? And if they really want the best for you and are willing to be honest, they'll tell you the truth.
1: Well, that's one of the hardest things to get a person to share with you, especially if they're close with you because a lot of times they'll want to protect you by not telling you they'll tell you the truth but it's candy coated and it can be very frustrating to say hey look at no i can take it the problem is many many times in the other person's life when they have been brutally honest usually when they're in an anger situation and they just let it all out um they get a very negative reaction from that person so how do we train people to be honest with us
0: Oh, I love that question, Bob. And I talk about it a lot in the book, because you're absolutely right. Even people who, you know, the three things I talk about with sources are people who see you clearly, have your best interests at heart, and are willing to be honest with you. And that third one, as you say, is the hardest one. So the way the what I talk about in the book about how to get people to be honest with you, the two most important things are that you invite them, you know, you Give them more than permission. You encourage them. Please, I really want to know the truth. It's important for me and for my growth as a human being, as a professional. And then no matter what they say, just listen. Because the minute you start, you know, disagreeing, defending, saying, how could you say that? Then that's it. They're never going to be honest with you again. So you have to, no matter how you're feeling inside, how defensive or resistant or you don't agree with them, just listen. Just take it in. Summarize what they say. Ask some questions. Because if you make it, to your point, if you make it a pleasant experience for them, then they're much more likely to be honest with you that time and then the next time you ask as well.
1: Yeah, one of the most powerful mechanisms for doing that actually is to take notes.
0: Yes. Oh, I love that because then you're, you're, you're occupied in getting it down correctly versus defending or resisting or, you know, refusing. Yeah. Great idea.
1: Plus it also, you know, shows that you're respecting the answers and you're writing down, you want to get them and, and. Gosh, I mean, if I'm at a meeting and, and I'm chatting with somebody and say, like, okay, we'd have to slow down a little bit because I have to take some notes. This is good stuff. You really feel good about what you're imparting with that person, yes. regardless of its advice or just a, like a, a brief on a job that you need done. Yeah. But suddenly your whole concept of who that person is and, and, and uh, your relationship grows in a very, very positive direction.
0: Great insight. Totally agree. And then so once you so let's say you've gotten yourself, you want to do the thing, you're clear about where you are starting from. And then the third thing is this thing we call endless curiosity. Now the the fascinating thing about this, as I've discovered and research really supported this, is that we are all born really endlessly curious. I mean if you've ever been around little kids, your own or someone else's they are relentless in their urge to understand and master new things. It's, you know, it's how we all go from being cute little blobs when we're born to being fully-fledged human beings, pretty much, by the time we're six or seven years old. It's that I need. they'll try things over and over again, they'll ask all the questions, they'll – So it's a wonderful thing. I mean, uh, there's one piece of research I talk about in the book that scientists consider curiosity in babies and toddlers as strong a drive as hunger and thirst, because it's how we survive and understand our environment. Now, the sad thing is that by the time we get to be teenagers, it gets kind of socialized out of us and it becomes much more important to be cool and know everything than it is to find stuff out and be curious. But the good news is you can re-engage that childhood curiosity as an adult, and it is, I think, the single most powerful way to turbocharge your learning. That same thing that you did when, when you were a kid, to ask those, ooh, how and why and I wonder kinds of questions. And again, it lives in your self-talk. You can. If, if, you, if you start to notice how you talk to yourself, you'll notice that when you're not curious about something, your self-talk is all around disinterest and dismissal. You say things to yourself like, well, who cares, or that's boring, or nobody wants to know that, or I don't, I don't care about figuring that out. So if you can shift your self-talk by just starting to ask a couple of those curiosity questions, even questions like, why would somebody find this interesting? Then it starts to spark that latent curiosity in you. And, and the cool thing about true curiosity is once you ask a question like that, you want to find the answer. And so then you're walking down the path of learning.
1: Now, one of the interesting things in the book is you have Michelangelo popping up every now and again uh, as a thread. And I thought that was fascinating. Uh, He was an amazing artist, but do you think he was probably the most curious person in the world at the time that he lived?
0: That's a wonderful uh, thing to posit. That may very well have been true. And it certainly served him in good stead. I mean, the reason I use Michelangelo in the book is that I, I focus on a particular project, which was him painting the ceiling of Sistine Chapel. And the reason I picked that is because he didn't want to do it. He tried to talk the Pope out of making him do it for years, you know, and I guess finally when the Pope says, you know, you got to do something it's 1500, you kind of got to do it. Uh, so he had to ramp up his own aspiration. He had to get uh, neutrally self-aware. He, the interesting thing was he didn't One of the reasons he didn't want to do it is he didn't consider himself a painter. He considered himself primarily an architect and a sculptor. So it was, and he was very aware of that. I mean, at the beginning of the project, he would call down to people and say, I'm no artist, come up and help me. You know, we might disagree with that, but he was pretty accurate about what his strengths and weaknesses were. And then he just, to your point, got so curious. And one of the, um, to me, fascinating things he got curious about is, because they were, you know, 70 feet up off the floor, they had to he had to figure out a new way of building scaffoldings because he realized that if he built them up from the floor like they ordinarily did, they would be dangerously unstable and enormously expensive. So he just got really curious. It's like, how could we do this differently and could we somehow use the building and all those great curiosity questions and he invented this system of scaffolding that involved um s- creating holes in the walls and sticking the the uh, horizontal beams into it and then cantilevering the scaffoldings off of those and it was so safe that nobody on the project got seriously hurt or killed for the four years that it it uh, it took to do it which is pretty amazing
1: yeah you know he was a great guy because he would look at a problem and not uh, he would I think he he enjoyed having problems put in front of himself and uh, maybe for him painting just wasn't Challenging enough, but painting way up in the way up in the air with all these uh, dangers and and having to overcome a bunch of problems of the logistics of it, got him it got him started, and then after that he became curious about the technique, and, and you know then the rest is history.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And he he his main assistant that he hired was a guy who was very experienced in fresco painting. And a combination of curiosity and neutral self-awareness, Michelangelo was, was willing to go to him and say, you know, this isn't working. How do we do this differently? And the guy under Michelangelo's, uh, you know, leadership invented, for instance, a new way of doing fresco that would not get moldy and subsequently became the kind of standard way of doing fresco painting in Italy, which I just, so many fascinating things. So then the, the last thing, the last skill, and we, this is what we started out talking about. So it's kind of full circle is this idea of willingness to be bad first. And, and this is the hardest one, I think for most adults, you know, we were talking about how you, one likes to be good at things. We all rely on our expertise and the idea of going back to being a novice that that point where you're a beginner and you feel clumsy and awkward and you have to ask embarrassing questions. We just hate that, especially when we have to do it in public. And the way to get good at that, again, lives in your self-talk. Because how we tend to talk to ourselves in situations like this is really terrible. It's, I'm an idiot and I should know this already and people are going to think I'm a loser. And what we found is that the ideal um, way to talk to yourself in situations where you're novice, where you're learning new, is this balance of acceptance of not good and faith in your ability to get good. So the way that sounds inside your head is, I know I'm going to be bad at this to begin with. That's inevitable. And I know I can get good at with practice. I've gotten good at a lot of things in my life, and I know I can improve. And if you have that sort of balanced mental set, mindset when you start, it just frees up your whole brain for learning and the static that's usually happening in your head about, ah, this is terrible. I'm going to be awful. It just kind of goes away and you go, okay, I'm going to be bad. And then I can get good. Let's go.
1: Yep. Same thing happens when you're hiking, you know, you take the kids hiking and if they're preoccupied, they have a fantastic trip. If you take them on the same trip and they're thinking about how hard it is to go uphill, it's making it so much harder because they're having to deal (laughs) with their negativism.
0: Yes, exactly. Which, and it's, Uh, fascinating how that it, when you have that internal negativism, negativism, this is hard, I'm bad, I'm going to screw this up, it not only clutters up your brain, but it has a physiological impact as well. And what I found is, because this is the hardest one for me, as it is for most people, and what I found is when I approach new learning with this mindset, it's soothing, it's relaxing, it it, it feels kind of liberating, I mean it's energizing and you can tell that then your whole focus is able to go toward learning.
1: Well you know the Zen of learning um, in Japan is that uh, learning takes forever so don't worry about it and just start now and do it and by doing it you become conscious of the subtleties and the nuances that cannot be taught and I think that's a big learning where you can go to somebody and say "Oh, how do I do this and they tell you like oh, I just do it like that and then you're actually starting to do and then you run into the 50,000 questions as well that this is way different than what how you explained yeah. it so how does a person um, maybe not demystify but uh, declutter or approach learning so that they don't get frustrated with these small tiny stumbling blocks
0: It's a wonderful question, and what I found is that there are two things. One is the mindset I just talked about where really, and you have to, we we have such a mental habit of beating ourselves up generally when we're starting something and getting frustrated and impatient and confused that just over and over again you have to substitute that balanced self-talk and bring it back to, okay, okay, I'm new at this. I am new at this. I am not going to be great at it for a while. I just need to calm down, and I'll get better at it later. I mean, literally saying that to yourself inside your head over and over again, it's the best possible thing I know. Then the second thing is that you can do what we've come to call bridging, which is when you're calmed down a little bit and you're accepting your novice state, you can start to see how the thing that you're learning is related to things you already know, and we call that bridging. You usually can't see it if you're all – freaked out about the fact that you don't know it yet. But when you calm down a little bit, you can recognize the the bridges to things you already know. Like, I'll give you an example uh, myself. I, I try to learn a new thing every year just because I'm trying to eat my own dog food here. <laughs> And um, the thing that I'm learning this year is Spanish. So I've been, I've known some Spanish for a long time. And this year I decided that I was going to get fluent. So that's my goal this year is to become a fluent Spanish speaker. And uh, so one of the consultants, one of my consultants at Proteus is a native Spanish speaker. She's actually, I'm so envious of her. She has native proficiency in Spanish, Portuguese, and French and almost native in English, so I just I want to do a Vulcan mind meld with her. But so what we decided to do is a couple of times a month, she and I are having a half-hour conversation in Spanish where because she's new to our company, Proteus, she's asking me about Proteus IP and how we do things, and I'm doing it in Spanish. And it's really hard because my Spanish is casual Spanish, so business Spanish is new for me. And every time at the beginning of the conversation I have to go, you know what? I'm going to be bad at this to start with. I've never done it before. This is why I'm doing this. I'll get better with practice, you know? And what I notice is that as I calm down... I noticed that learning Spanish is similar to acquiring other bodies of knowledge that I've already acquired where you're learning a new vocabulary and at the same time you're also learning how people use that vocabulary, whether it's in you know science or some kind of art. So I'm, I'm being able to use those bridges to other things that I've already learned and it's making it easier. Does that make
1: sense? Oh, absolutely. Well, and and a lot of it, I think, is is based on on confidence. Uh, One of the major stumbling blocks of students with a new language is uh, not being forced to have to use that language, but more than anything else is having the confidence to not worry about using the wrong word. When I was in Japan, I would constantly try to use Japanese, and sometimes people would just crack up because the things (laughs) I said were insane.
0: Yes. But
1: for me, I didn't care. Because it was all me trying, and because of that, they respected that I was trying, and and they would step up and use more of their English. Because everybody in Japan has a huge English vocabulary, mm-hmm. they were just too shy to speak it. Because to try it, yes. exactly because they didn't want to be a loose face by by actually using the wrong words. But me being a senior person in the organization, just doing stuff and baby talk, and said, man, if if this guy can deface himself and do it then I'm safe, and it enabled our department to actually be much, much more uh, communication literate uh, for you know, a bunch of people stumbling around with, with a little bit of English and a little bit of Japanese.
0: Well, I love that story for a couple of reasons. First of all, you're fortunate because um, it seems like, at least in this case, it was not that difficult for you to be bad first, and, and for most people learning languages, it's brutally difficult to be bad first, and in fact, it's why... You know, it's interesting. Um, some of the research that I found while doing, while researching the book, that I really was thrilled about is that a lot of what brain scientists thought till very recently about what happened to our brain as we get older is wrong. I mean, the, until very recently, neuroscientists thought that our brain started to kind of devolve <laughs> as soon as we were born. And that that plasticity that we have as babies and children goes away. And that um, that was their rationale for why we don't learn as well as we get older. Well, it turns out that that's not true. That, yes, our brain cells do start to die off as soon as we're born, and we're continually creating new ones, and we can create new synapses between those brain cells our whole life. And either the most important thing is that the areas of our brain that are for learning can be kept as plastic, as open to learning, to acquiring new synapses when we're 80 as when we're born. So there's no neurological reason for us not to keep learning. And so then what I believe is that as we get older and older, generally, although you seem to have avoided this somehow, we get more and more worried about looking bad. Like if you watch little kids learn how to speak, they do not care at all about making mistakes. They just want to communicate. So, you know, I have two little granddaughters now and they don't don't worry about saying something wrong. They say it wrong 12 times and then they get it right. And, you know, they're completely (laughs) not at all burdened by this doubt and fear and hesitation but as we get older most of us are and so this whole the whole point of my raising this idea of the skill of willingness to be bad first is to make it so that more adults are able to do what you were able to do with your Japanese which is not not worry so much and just say hey I am going to be bad at this to start with and I'll get better as I practice now the other thing I wanted to point out about your wonderful story is that when senior people, when leaders in an organization can demonstrate their willingness to be novices, it makes it easier for everybody else in the organization to do that. And I, I have a wonderful client who does this in public. Like he'll have – he has quarterly meetings of the top 25 people or so in his company. And somebody will be explaining something, and he'll stop them and say, oh, wait, one sec. I don't really understand what you're saying. Can you go back and just use different words? So marvelous! Then everybody in the room is much more willing to ask those same kinds of beginner questions.
1: Yeah, it's interesting when I uh, when I teach up in front of people. The first thing I'll do is like, "Hey, great! It's great to have you guys here. Uh, by the way, here's the rule: uh, everybody has to ask at least one dumb question during the presentation, or they get no points." And uh, everyone's like, "What?" And then the first person asks a question. If it's a good question, I'll say, "Hey, that's a fantastic question." Unfortunately. You're still going to have to come up with a dumb question and then answer the good question. So basically saying that, no, you guys have to ask a dumb question. Good and questions do you, don't how count. Do
0: you, now, now I'm curious. How do you frame that up for them? How do you help them understand what a dumb question is? And I just
1: like? tell them. I mean, somebody will then somebody asks another question. That's an amazing question. It's not dumb enough. I'm just going to ask this. I'm just basically saying that if you think you've got a dumb question, you're lucky because
0: what what, now i'm now i'm really i'm curious what do you mean i'm asking you what do you mean by a dumb question what would qualify as a dumb question
1: uh basically that's something very 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 basic that they should know before they were even Uh. in the seminar Uh. or it's really it's me just trying to make it a game because then it ceases to be a dumb question it becomes a game and then somebody will ask a question. well you know what about this and i said well you know what that's uh that's borderline yeah okay i'll let you have the point right <laughs> so it, it, it's and then they feel amazing hey see look at i'm smart enough to ask the right type of question
0: i'm smart enough to ask a dumb question i yeah. love that yeah because yes.
1: then it, it what it does is it takes there's lots of people that you know there's the different personality types you have the outgoing people and then you have the people that are shy at both ends of the spectrum so yeah. if you have the outgoing people trying to come up with dumb questions then they'll probably come up with questions that other people are thinking of but are a little shy to ask because eh, that's kind of a silly question. Or, oh, I'm yeah. not sure if I'm going to look good or bad. Or, Maybe I'll wait until after or I'm going to write these questions down and then ask, it, you know, then never get around to it. But if these guys kind of prompt it, then I'll go over the same material a third or a fourth time and then everybody gets it. And at the end of the day, that's my job is to make sure as many people as possible get, you know, get what we're trying to get across so that they can learn, learn and move forward.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's great.
1: So I wanted to ask you, what's the difference between learning as far as headspace and mastering?
0: So to me, mastering is just learning forever. The eighth chapter in the book is an FAQ chapter, and I solicited questions from a variety of people. And my husband, who is a wonderful person, a wonderful learner, said, do you ever get done being bad? And I thought it was a great question. And my answer was, if you're lucky, no. Because if because true mastery means going back to being bad over and over and over again. And I was just I was talking to a client of mine who's an Olympic gold medalist. She was a gold medal hurdler in the 1984 Olympics. And she was saying, you know, great athletes know that, that you can never rest on your laurels. You can never consider that you've mastered something. She said, I, I remember when I was uh, preparing for the Olympics that my coach found that there was something not great in my jump And we had to unpack it all the way down to the bottom and start over again. And, or if you think of Tiger Woods redoing his swing. I mean, you know, and my very favorite quote in this realm is from a guy, Pablo Casals. I don't know if you know of him. He was the, uh, widely held to be the greatest cellist of the 20th century, kind of pre-Yo-Yo Ma. And he practiced daily for hours until he was in his 90s. And I read an interview with him when he was 91 or 92, I think. And the guy said, so, Senor Casals, why do you still practice so much? And Casals said, I'm finally starting to notice some improvement. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think Oops. is just the best line, you know. And if you really, if your intention is mastery, you will just keep going.
1: So it sounds to me that, that you know, people that want to learn, is it better to go to somebody that's trying to master or somebody that's, you um, has has learned the skill set and has got into some some efficiencies for that particular skill set um has a pretty good idea what to do and knows a lot of the hiccups for that particular skill set but isn't trying to master Is satisfied with their knowledge base so they can move on to other skills
0: i'm not sure i understand what you're asking do you mean as a learner well if you approach better-
1: yeah i mean is it better to approach somebody that's mastering something or is it better to approach somebody that's satisfied with their learning base so they're going to teach you more efficiently
0: I'm not sure that's the distinction I would make. I think if you're looking for a good teacher, it's somebody who can really get into the mindset of the learner. And what I mean by that is a lot of teachers, they just teach you what they know without reference to what you know or what you want to learn. And the very best teachers I know really try to get into your head as a learner. Like, where are you now? Where are you starting from? What are you good at? What are you worried about? What are you trying to, you know, what are your learning goals? And I think teachers who can do that, who can really get in there with you as a learner are far and away the most valuable.
1: Hmm. Okay, I wanted to ask you, you know, you, you've done several books and uh, you are been doing this a long time. So when you were writing this book, what was your aha moment where something you already knew was true crystallized for you?
0: Oh, what a wonderful question. I, I would say that there was a series of aha moments. I felt like as I was as I was writing the book <laughs> and this happened afterwards too, but my process for writing is that, you know, I start out with a pretty good outline, I pretty much know what I'm gonna write, and then I'll write a chunk and then I'll stop. And then when I come back, I'll start in that same place and edit that chunk and then just keep writing. So basically, I'm looking at everything twice. And quite often, when I would go back to edit the chunk that I had written in my last session, I would find myself thinking, wow, that is really true. (laughs) (laughs) And then noticing a whole bunch of new ways in which yes, that is true. It's been true for me. I've seen it in the people that I've coached and taught all these years. So it kind of affirmed itself as I wrote it, which was awesome.
1: Wow. Well, it's very motivating as well.
0: Yes. Yeah, this
1: is good stuff. I'm gonna have to read this book.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and it, it's so funny because I was able to record the audiobook myself, which is a wonderful experience, and I'm really glad they let me do it. But when I was reading it, I hadn't it had been a couple of months since I'd read it, you know, because it was done, it was off to the publisher, it's ready to go. I hadn't read it again. And then, you know, when I was recording the audiobook, I read every word and I had that experience a lot. It's wow. And it was really fun because my experience was, oh, this is going to be so helpful to people, <laughs> which is a great thing to feel, you know. Absolutely. Now, for people
1: that are super busy, which everybody thinks they are, um, and they, they've got the book, they've, they've, you know, they're in a bookstore and they're, they're flipping through it. If they want to read one chapter or, or a part of a chapter, which one do you think they're going to get the most benefit from?
0: I really tried to make it as uh, succinct, as possible. It's not a it's not a big book. Um, I guess if I were going to read one chapter, I'd read the chapter where I introduced the model, the, where I introduced the idea of Michelangelo and explain the four skills, if you literally just had one chapter to read, which is the third chapter.
1: Hmm. All right. For you, uh, and at least for our listening audience, what is something that they can do today to move forward uh, to become a better learner?
0: Okay, if I were going to pick one thing, I'd say notice your self-talk about being a novice. That's a great place to start. And notice just the unfortunate things that you are probably saying to yourself about, I'm going to look dumb, people are going to think I'm a loser, and I'm an idiot, why don't I know this already? Just notice that and try to substitute that more accepting, you know what, I'm going to be bad at this to start with because that's inevitable and it's okay. And just see... Just notice the impact that that has on you mentally, emotionally, you know, physiologically, and that's a, that's a wonderful place to start.
1: So for the person that's gone through the book and has you know, kind of got a lot of the learning and stuff like that, it, where can they continue to learn and continue to, to perfect this technique? Do you have a blog, or, or what should they do to, to get more?
0: Man, I love all these questions. So <laughs> we have an online learning portal called ProteusLeader.com. And it has 16 topics that we think are critical to leadership and management. And because the book is right now being published and we really want people to have, as you say, a place to go to take it deeper, the topic that is the Be Bad First topic is completely open. It's in front of the paywall. So, I mean, of course, we... We'd love it if you'd decide to have a membership to proteusleader.com, but you can access all the resources right now in be bad first without paying. Just go to proteusleader.com, pick the topic be bad first, and there's a quiz, a get good at things fast quiz to see where you're starting. There's a, there are videos of me explaining this model to people. There's there are a lot of just a lot of great tools.
1: Usually, I ask people what their favorite anecdote is in the book, and and you don't really have a lot of anecdotes in the book. Um, so for you, what was the, what was the funnest, um, and this is going back to your aha moment question earlier. What was the, the, the funnest chapter when you finished, you said, wow, that has got some great material in it.
0: I, I think I would say the same one, the third chapter. I loved, I, I loved the moment when I realized that Michelangelo was going to be my kind of thread story because I've been such a, such a fan of his, if you will, for the last, you know, 40 years. And, um, and I really liked how that chapter came out using Michelangelo as example, then bringing it up to the 20th century and introducing my reader about whom I feel very <laughs> impersonal, <laughs> uh, to these four skills, which I really do think are critical to good learning.
1: Well, and also I, I find it interesting with Michelangelo, he was, um, he was dyslexic in a big way. He wrote, right, He wrote in mirror um, and and he was you know he had some not like demons but basically he had some some learning disabilities that he was going through. Do you think that people that are challenged uh, earlier on in their in their life and and uh, have things like they 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 can't see as well or they have a they're slightly hearing impaired or they're dyslexic or that there's a challenge that they have to face early on in life that they kind of get over the learning. Uh, Situation where a lot of other people that have kind of swam through life very very easily at the beginning, and then suddenly they have to learn, and they have a hard time learning.
0: What I believe, and I, this is just me, I don't have data sure. to support this, is that people people respond to the same situation very differently. So, for instance, I suspect that there are people who have learning challenges, whether it's dyslexia or hearing impairment or visual impairment. Who respond to it just by shutting down and staying in their comfort zone, and you know, creating a pretty small life for themselves. And there are people who respond to it in exactly the opposite way, and become just powerful learners, and uh, you know, overcome, not only overcome their uh, pre-existing limitations, but go on to just smash various limitations for themselves. Um, a lot of stories support this of, of people who have you know, done great things in their lives. Richard Branson is dyslexic, you know. But I really think uh, there's a quote, um, I think it's Eleanor Roosevelt. She said, you can't control the circumstances of your life, but you can control how you respond to them. And I think that's really the point of this book. And if I'm going to be honest, the point of all my books is you can't necessarily control the circumstances of your life, but you can certainly control how you respond to them. And this book is all about how you respond being put in the situation that we're all in, where you have to learn new things all the time to stay current, to future-proof yourself.
1: Well, you know, it's um, it's one of the things that I've, I've always been conscious of is, is people that have come out, you know, um, from, let's say, the ghetto, and they've struggled and, and they became an amazing basketball player, or they struggled and they they excelled in school and were also an amazing basketball player or somebody from India that was in an incredibly impoverished situation and yet uh, ended up as a CEO of a a multinational organization or a woman that um, struggled in in a suppressive society and was able to overcome all that. Do you think that if we're more challenged in life, it drives us to understand the core learning that you just talked about that you're either going to Deal with the situations around you, try and make the situations as good as possible or give up on life. And the people that are going to the top and, and amazing uh, everybody else and say, oh my gosh, how did that person do that? They've just decided, you know what? I don't care what the world's going to throw at me. I'm just going to deal with it. Get ready.
0: Yes. And, 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 and I'll go back to what I said before. I feel like in, in a given circumstance, people can respond in a variety of ways. You know, people can just give up and stay in poverty or in a horrible situation. People can really, as you say, decide that they are going to do everything they can to make their life what they want it to be and everything in between. I mean, I really do feel like to a much greater extent than we generally recognize day to day that our lives are in our control, not the circumstances of our lives, but our response to those circumstances. And that we have much more control over being able to create the kind of life that we want for ourselves than we often think we do.
1: Yeah. I think we're wholly responsible for our lives. And you're right, not for the situation that we're in, but it doesn't matter. You may be in, in a very, very a tenuous situation let's say drug addiction you can get out of that problem I mean you got yourself in get yourself out and i think a lot of people just don't know how to reset their brain or step back from the reality that they're in it goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation is being aware of where you are and how people perceive you because part of being understanding how you're perceived by other people and you perceive yourself is you really get some perspective and you say well what why am i down here what am i doing here why am i not going over there so many people are so Trapped by the reality that they're in, that they can't step away. So I wanted to ask you, how do people step away? I said very, very difficult question. I know.
0: I I think the core thing it goes back to neutral self awareness and what you were saying about mindfulness. I feel like if you really want to create uh, the life that you most intend to have, you have to be willing to question your core assumptions about yourself, about how things work, about life. I feel like I've often felt like we are like birds living in a cage with the door open. You know, the door's open, but we assume that it's closed. We assume we can't get out. And so you just, I feel like on a daily basis you have to question your limiting assumptions. Is that really true? Is that really impossible? Can I not do that? You know, And just be willing to come to different conclusions.
1: It's a tough, tough, tough lesson. I think the more that you throw yourself self against the cage of the wall, eventually you're going to throw yourself and the door will be there and it'll be open. You say, oh, oh that was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll remember that next time I think the door is closed. <laughs>
1: We've been chatting with Erica. Be bad first. Get good at things fast to stay ready for the future. Thanks for being on the show. It was a fascinating discussion.
0: Oh, thank you. It was a fascinating discussion. You ask great questions. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk.
1: Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlick. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com
0: for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.